Well, I would draw your attention back once again to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 11. It's been a couple weeks, but we, uh, we looked to God's Word the last time we were together and looked at Ephesians and saw some amazing things that God has done for us, for by grace are we saved through faith, not of ourselves, and that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's go back to God's Word this morning, His holy, inerrant, infallible Word. And we'll begin reading in verse 11 of chapter 2 through verse 19. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And He and, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Our sovereign Lord, oh, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to your word. That revelation that you've given us of yourself. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for your word this morning. We thankful that you have or thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, that we who are far off might be brought near. We who are aliens and strangers might be sons. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. So we just heard in the song, Lord. Open our ears, open our eyes, that we might see Christ. Lord, be with us here this morning. Pray that the Spirit of God would move amongst us, that we would feel His presence as we turn to Your Word. In Your name we pray. Amen. I want you to uh, imagine something here with me this morning for a few moments. Direct your thoughts to kind of painting a picture this morning um, that you're outside on the outskirts of a of a great city, and this city is one of great blessing and privilege. It's a city with a great leader who is wise and he's strong. He's the perfect leader. It's a city of wealth. And not just wealth that we see in a lot of cities today where the leaders pile that wealth up for themselves to make a name for themselves or to, to build their bankrolls. But such wealth that it is shared. Immeasurable riches shared with all its inhabitants. 
whose citizens share a common and mutual identity. It's a city where people have been the recipients. They've received a great promise of immeasurable blessings to all its inhabitants and to share in all of the benefits of the one who leads them in this city. And these benefits include meeting with him, feasting with this leader, celebrating with him. These citizens actually, that you're on the outskirts of this city, these citizens actually have a relationship with with their leader. He's not one who lives apart from them and works in some, you know, works in some far off palace. But he's close by and he enters into every part of this city to be among the people and to be part of their lives. Now, as you're on the outskirts of this city, word word reaches you that there's a, a great day of battle coming. And the whole land in which this city lies is going to be engulfed in this this battle. But this family, these inhabitants of this city, don't have any fear of this battle that's to come. They have hope and they trust in their leader and the shelter that this leader provides, the salvation he provides from the wrath that is coming upon all of those who don't belong to this city. In fact, it's the wrath of this city's leader's father that is going to be taken out on all who aren't inhabitants of this place. There's nowhere to hide. There's no refuge for anyone outside this city. And you're on the outskirts of the wall. Here you are. You have been a citizen of a world outside of that city. No way of getting into the, through the walls of this city. You're a foreigner. You're an alien by birth to those inside the walls. Where does that leave you? Does it not leave you destitute? Without hope? Do you see the picture being painted here this morning? This is the picture that Paul is making for these Gentile believers and what they once were. This is what Paul says to these Ephesians when he says, Therefore, remember. Look at Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Saying, remember, Ephesians, remember you who are Gentiles that you were once at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called that by the Jews those who were circumcised as a sign of being set apart to God, a chosen people. This is, is those, that group of people who are calling you the uncircumcision. Once again, we find the Apostle Paul writing to these Ephesians and the church beyond who are Gentiles in the flesh. He's calling them to remember. Just like he did in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, where we see him reminding all of his readers of the fact that they were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to tell them what they were in the flesh, right? He's addressing in that part of of this chapter, of chapter 2, a somewhat mixed congregation, mostly Gentile converts, when he says, that is, uh, the Gentiles here, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and then he goes on to tell them more. And ends with this statement, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. We all, Jews and Gentiles. He brings it back to the fact that all mankind lived this way. 
dead in trespasses and sins and everything else he lists in those first three verses of chapter 2. And he does much the same thing in our text here this morning, starting with verse 11, but it's a little bit more pointedly towards these Gentile converts, those of the uncircumcision. Thomas Goodwin, one of the preeminent English Puritans in the 1600s, I think he was born in 1600 or 1601, states that it is, it is the Spirit of God saying to these Gentiles, and to us in reality, we are Gentiles. I don't have a drop a Jewish blood in my body. Not fleshly blood in my body. He says, but in reality, let this ever stick with you, he says. Let it ever be before your eye, wherefore remember, Thomas Goodwin says. Remember. This remembrance is one of the chief causes and helps in understanding what it is that Paul has been showing us all the way from the start of Ephesians 1 and so far through chapter 2 that we've been through that salvation is by grace. It is a gift. It has nothing to do with what you were. You, the only thing that you brought to the table is sin and death. That's it. God brought life. God brought grace. God brought mercy into this. You brought your sin. And He bestowed this grace and this mercy upon you, this gift, and it's a free gift. You had no claim to this gift by your merit or by your earning. None whatsoever. It was not earned, it was a free gift that it might be of grace and grace alone. If you did anything for it, it's no longer a gift, folks. It's, some, it's a wage. It's a free gift of God's grace. Therefore, remember, says Paul, that at one time, or as some translations put it, you formerly Formerly you were, or you once were, in times past, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That is what uh, the Jews referred to these Gentiles as, the uncircumcision. Paul is pointing them to see the evidence of their state was represented even in their very flesh, being uncircumcised. We'll take a little aside for a moment and talk about something from this passage that has a bearing on what we're talking about, but it's also a, a great application and a lesson for, the, for us. What was the reason the Jews called them the uncircumcision? They called them this in a haughty way, in a prideful way, because they were full of pride as they were the ones who had been outwardly in the flesh circumcised. Prideful, for possessing the sign of being set apart in the fact that uh, in but in fact were guilty in many cases of not possessing the reality of what that sign was for they bore the sign in their flesh but in their heart they were uncircumcised circumcised in the flesh not in the heart uh, this was a reality spoken by God through, through His prophets, even in the Old Testament. This uncircumcised heart. Uh, you know, they, they had this outward sign, but the truth and the reality of the sign that was pictured was far from them. In Leviticus 26, 41, we're told, So that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled. Speaking about the Jews, those of the circumcision who wanted to call the, the Gentiles uncircumcised. In Deuteronomy 10, which we read earlier in our congregational reading time, did you catch it when, when we read that? What, what was it that God told Moses to speak to the people? Circumcise, therefore, the skin of your heart. Circumcise your heart. And again, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, 
And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It wasn't enough that they circumcise their body to live. God must circumcise their heart. wasn't so much the outward circumcision. It was but a sign of what should be a reality internally in the heart. A heart given to the Lord, a heart serving the Lord, a heart devoted to Him. So much more than a physical outward sign. In Jeremiah 4, 3-4, we read from the prophet Jeremiah, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground. And sow not among the thorns. Listen to what he says. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. But then he clarifies that. He says, remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest... My wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. The outward was nothing but a sign of that which should have been a reality in their hearts. Holy submitting to the Lord, a people set apart not outwardly but inwardly, a peculiar people to the Lord." Yet these Jews in our text this morning had become so concerned about that which was on the outside, the outward appearance, that they completely forgot what was to be an inward reality. They gloried in that which was physical. Making a dividing wall between them and the Gentiles because of what was physical. They were puffed up and proud of the sign in the flesh and their adherence to all these ceremonial things, but inside their hearts were far from the Lord. As our Lord once said in Matthew, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, even stating in very descriptive language in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You may be clean on the outside, but your inside stinks of death. Let us be careful not to slip into pride because we call ourselves Christians. Let us never be guilty of looking down on others who don't share with us something that is in common with our flesh or our name. Something physical, something material, whether it be class, wealth, ethnicity, education, it doesn't matter what you want to divide between. This is about inward things, not outward All of this, every bit of this, everything that the Gentiles did in their ceremonies actually gained them nothing if it wasn't true inwardly. And this goes to our point of what we've been learning about through all of Ephesians. This isn't about what you do. This is about what God has already done. So let's turn back and get back to the point of our, of our text here this morning. This is what the Jews held over the Gentile Christians, but Paul uses that as a way to bring them to understand and see what it is that they were. Notice the text is in past tense. This is a beautiful thing. Remember that at one time you were... 
Or remember, therefore, what you were. In times past you were, but you are no longer this. Do you see what this does and what Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing? He is causing them to see, as all of us should frequently recall, and reflect upon the sinfulness of our nature and the state that we are in, in the flesh. What we are by nature. Paul, in pointing them back to this, goes on to detail more about their dreadful former state as the uncircumcised. In verse 12, he gives us this list of things that they were. That you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They were those standing outside the city walls when the wrath of God is about to appear and destroy everything outside the citizens of that city. They were outside. What a miserable state is described here by the apostle for these Gentiles, these uncircumcised The only glimpse of positive at all in this whole verse, verse 12, is the phrase that you were at one time. Pointing to the fact that something has changed. And we will see what that is in a moment. But they were separated from Christ. These Gentiles in their fallen, lost, alienated state were at one time not united to Christ through faith. James Montgomery Boyce points out that this is just as true of the Jews. But unlike the Jews, the Gentiles had no real chance to know who Christ was. They belonged to a religion that was completely pagan. They were idol worshipers, worshipers of false gods. We could even say that in some senses, they were worshipers of demonic forces. Could we not? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. That's who the Gentiles worshipped. Idols. And in their false religion, they had no expectation of a Savior. None. None. Unlike the nation of Israel, the Gentiles were not searching for the Messiah, as the Jews should have been at this time. It was a foreign concept to them that a Savior would come. And then he says that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not citizens of Israel. They weren't citizens of God's people. Paul tells us in Romans 9, 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. This was what the Jews were recipients of, not the Gentiles. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They didn't share in the commonwealth. Break those two words down and think about what that means. They had something in common, the Jews did, and it was wealth from God. This group of people chosen by God, united by common interest and mutual benefit, that was Israel. They were, but the Gentiles, they were separated from this. The Greek word used for commonwealth is a word from which we get our English language word polity. It's, it describes a group of people who, with, who have a shared or collective identity. That's what is, we're getting at with this word commonwealth in the scripture here. A collective identity. The Gentiles were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. They were outside of that common identity that the Jews shared. Think about this in terms of our own families. 
Is it not an amazing privilege to be born into a Christian family? Isn't it? There are many who don't have that privilege. Who grew up in families just like the Gentiles. Pagan. Idolatrous. Atheists. No fear of God. Nothing. No purpose. What a privilege it is to grow up in a Christian home. Even though the heart of that individual that grows up in that Christian home may not be converted, do they not reap the benefits of growing up in a Christian home? There is even an outward blessing to being raised in a home where God is loved and adored and worshipped. A home that functions in, the, in a way that God has ordained in Scripture that the home functions. There is great privilege to this. This is why His Word guides us in how we should organize the home. How the home should work. There are blessings that come from that. And the picture here is that the Gentiles were outside of this. They did not share in the things as they were alienated, estranged, and foreigners to this commonwealth of Israel. This common identity that Israel had. The benefits of being among the children of God. And they were strangers to the covenants of promise. These Gentiles were at one time outside the covenant relationship that Israel had with God. He speaks here of the covenants of promise, plural, in reference to what is the many reaffirmation of the promise of God, the covenant of grace, which was retold and restated again and again and again. The promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, to the restating of that promise to Isaac and to Jacob, and over and over again throughout the history of Israel. But really, this covenant, this covenant of grace, has its roots all the way back in Genesis 3, does it not? Where God curses the serpent and makes a promise regarding the offspring of Eve, who will defeat the enemy, a foreshadowing and promise of the Messiah, a promise of our Savior, in whom all the nations will be blessed by His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. All these things, the promise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, foretold all the way back in the very beginning in Genesis 3. This is truly the covenant of promise, but as strangers to this covenant, these Gentiles at one time had no knowledge of this. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They may have had some knowledge of God's power. Think about the power and might that was displayed as the children of Israel throughout history, God working through that nation of Israel as even as they came into the promised land. The power of God on display in battle after battle. It wasn't the nation of Israel's strength that got them through. It was the strength of God. It was His promises. But they had no revelation of this grace and mercy. They had no prophet to speak to them of great truth. They had no promise like we find in Isaiah 53. This, this covenant promise of one who would come on our behalf. They had no prophet to tell them that a Messiah was coming to bear their griefs and carry their sorrow. They had no word of one who was pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities, upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace. No promise of one who was oppressed and afflicted, like a lamb led to slaughter, one on whom God the Father laid the iniquity of us all. 
or one who would make intercession for us. They were strangers to this promise. What does that result in? What does he tell us here? And as a result, they had no hope. No hope. They had nothing on which to build a foundation of hope. We've talked about this before. Our hope is not some wish. Our hope is not some, you know, off in the, in the distant, oh, I just, I just you know, I, I have a hope that this is going to happen. We have a hope that's grounded in a reality that God will bring it to pass. That's hope. That's a hope that is, is based on something real. They had no foundation for this. Strangers. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that apart from Christ, and I'll add that apart from the promise of Christ, the deeper a man thinks apart from Christ, the more pessimistic he becomes. Think about that for a second. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that we are not speaking of the frivolous individual. He says we're not speaking of that frivolous, frivolous individual that, that sees the glitter and, and doesn't look deep enough to see the tarnish underneath. Okay? But he says the man who really thinks, the individual who really sits and ponders things, the great philosophers, the artists, the poets, the writers... All are increasingly pessimistic without Christ. And even more so as they grow older. And they've had more time to ponder these things. Because they are without hope. If you don't have Christ, you don't have hope. These Gentiles were without hope at one time. Because... They are without God in the world, is what our text tells us. This is why Paul says to the Gentile believers, you had no hope because you're without God in the world. They didn't have the special revelation as the Jews did. As a result, they were in a miserable state, fallen in idolatry, pagan, with no hope and without God in the world. Do you see here how Paul unfolds all of this to these Gentile believers? He says, I want to draw your attention once again back to what you were. And just like he did in the earlier chapters, or earlier portions of this chapter, so he will do again. He will set forth the miserable state that we were in, and then there is a great transition. There's a great turn, a most magnificent change in direction here. But now, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were far off, you who were way far away in everything I've just described have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. But now, Paul says, word has reached you. The word of God has reached you. And the blood of Christ has brought you near. You are no longer alienated from the commonwealth. You've been adopted as sons. You've received the promise. And you have a guarantee. What did we read about earlier in Ephesians 1? You have a guarantee sealed by the Holy Spirit of more to come. And you have a hope grounded in the promises of God. And you are brought before God even in this world and you have been adopted by Him. You've been adopted. So that what Galatians tells us in Galatians 4, 6-7 through 7, might be said of you. And that reads, and because you are sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
you who were once outside the family have been made sons. Do you see here the change? See, Gentile believers, what you were, and now look at what you are through the sacrifice, through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, For He Himself, or He alone, is our peace. What all these things that the Jews had as outward ordinances, the sacrifice, the ceremonies, the rituals, could not in reality do anything for them. The outward observance of these things, of which these Gentiles were outside of, could never accomplish what it pictured. They themselves, the ordinances, never brought true peace. Look with me at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they have not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That that the Jews had, that they looked down upon these Gentiles for, the outward could never take away sin. So you see that these outward things never really brought peace. They pointed to the one who could. The one who our text says, he Himself is our peace. Just like the circumcision of the flesh, they were signs of things, the reality of which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that the Jews should have been looking for instead of making their whole lives about the outward appearance and observances of these things when their hearts remained uncircumcised. But now Christ has come and He Himself, He alone, did all that was required externally and in the heart. And He bore in Himself our debt on the cross so that we might be reconciled, that we both Jews and Gentiles might have peace with God. Going back to Isaiah 53.5. But we, we talked about Isaiah 53 a, a moment ago. Isaiah 53.5 says, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us what? That brought us peace. He Himself is our peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Listen to what it says here. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things uh, hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making Peace by the blood of His cross. 
making peace. Romans 5.1 says for us that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. And so it is that we have peace with God, but there's more. He not only reconciled us to God and did away with the enmity that's between God and us, making peace for us with God, who has a wrath against sin, sin that we committed, that we were born into, that we continued to do over and over and over again. He reconciled us to God. He made peace for us through His blood with God. But He also made peace between us and the Jews. We'll get into this more later, but He made us both one. He Himself is our peace. He's made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken down the wall that separated the Jews, the circumcised, and the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. The hostility and the enmity that was between these two groups of, groups of people has been torn down. It's been demolished. Being reconciled in peace with God, reconciled to God in peace with God, leading through that to peace and reconciliation with others. These two groups could not have been more hostile to each other. We have groups of people today that are hostile to each other. And I hope soon that we'll talk about this. But couldn't be nowhere near as hostile as the Jews and the Gentiles were with each other. They hated each other. Hated each other terribly. Yet in Christ, by the shed blood of our Savior, there might be peace and reconciliation one to the other, even between these two groups. This had a very visible symbol in the time in which this epistle was written. I believe that's what it, Paul may be alluding to here. The temple... The Jewish place of worship and sacrifice during this time was the Herodian temple that was constructed by Herod. And the way this temple was constructed is very interesting in light of what Paul is telling us here. One of the Bible dictionaries that I use some is the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And it records for us that the first century historian Josephus mentions four courts within this temple structure. Four courts. The outer court was open to all people. All people. Uh, the only thing, foreigners included, only menstruating women were barred from coming into that court. Everybody else, foreigner, alien, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, you were allowed in this outer court. The second court was open to all Jews anyone that was uncontaminated by any defilement, Jewish man or Jewish woman. Both were allowed into this second court. The third court was limited to the Jews, the male Jews who were clean and had been purified by ritual. This third court. The fourth court was limited to priests robed in their priestly vesture. Their priestly garments, very exclusive, drawing near to God's presence. These four courts in succession getting near to God. This was the way that the construction was. And there was a wall that separated this first court, this court that was later to be titled the Court of the Gentiles. There was a wall that separated these Gentiles from anywhere else that Jews might enter. And there have been two complete tablets that have been found in archaeology, written in Greek as a warning and placed on that stone wall, that dividing wall, 
near the stairs leading further into that next court, from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the Jews that men and women, uh, Jewish people, can enter. These two signs, and here's what it read. No alien may enter. No alien may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. Do you see the picture of this dividing wall, this wall of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews? And what does Christ, or what does Paul tell us here in our text? What does he tell his readers? These Gentile readers who were once alienated, who were once far off, who were strangers to the promises, to the covenants, to the commonwealth, alienated from God. Christ has broken down in his own flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has made both one. One people to God. He has put an end to the division, to the hostility, to the enmity between God and man, yes, but also making them one people, making us both one, reconciled to God and reconciled to God together, making Enemies, brothers and sisters in Christ. Though the Jews had an outward appearance of following God and being His people, both the Gentiles and the Jews had need of reconciliation and being brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And also in breaking down this wall of hostility, these Gentiles, these aliens, think about the picture of the temple structure. They were the furthest off. When Christ died by His blood, He brought them into the presence of God. That place where only the priests in their proper priestly garments might even have a hope of going. There's so much more I'd like to deal with regarding these things, and we'll have to return to this later if, if God allows. Part of what I hope to deal with is Paul's continuation of this thought in verses 15 through 19 of, the, of chapter 2 here in our text. And I pray we'll be given an opportunity to look as well at how this can be the reality for these in this epistle that was written to us as well, that it is by the blood of of Jesus Christ that we are brought near. Though we were once far off, which Paul has already dealt with in this portion of Scripture from our text that we've looked at this morning, but though that we who were far off, this includes us, we were far off, can be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a most glorious truth and reality. Something Hebrews so richly clarifies for us. These things were shadowy in the Old Testament. They were somewhat obscure in the Old Testament, but now they're made perfectly clear. Something symboled for us in the Old Testament, but realized in the New. And when the genuine, the real, appears... Symbols go away. They fade away. They're not useful anymore when you have the real thing. For those of us who have been redeemed, for those of us who have been reconciled to God, we need to search out what it is that Paul says here this morning. To, to reflect on what we once were. What it is we have been saved from. 
the recognition and remembrance of this should produce in us hearts bursting forth like a, I think of Old Faithful. We used to go to Old Faithful uh, when we lived there in Montana several times a year just to see that water just gushing forth from the ground. That's the way our praise should be. That we who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hearts overflowing with praise and adoration and a longing to see others reconciled to Him. Even our enemies. Even those who we can't stand to look at, to be around. We have to pray that God would reconcile them. If you find yourself still in the state that Paul called these Gentiles to remember, if you've not been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, what we have looked at this morning should give you a source of hope. Hope in the cross of Christ. This is the only source of hope. The only glimpse of hope for one who is far off. One who is outside the city. Look to the Savior, look to Jesus Christ, and see what Paul says this Savior has done for those who are on the outside. Those who were strangers. Those who were aliens. Those without hope and without God in the world. What does Paul say to them? But now in Christ Jesus. The same power that brought these Gentiles who were once also far off near to God. This blood of Christ which brings peace with God and with others still at work today. There's hope. Still at work. Christ said in John 10 that He has other sheep that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. He said no man comes to the Father but what? By me. It's by the blood of Christ. And I pray that if that's your case this morning that He draws you as well to the place where you know yourself to be this morning and that you might look to the cross and live. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises that we find in Your Word. Promises of hope. Promises of reconciliation. Promises of bringing those who are far off near by the blood of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, let those who are strangers to Him look to Him and live. Lord, let them see their state of hopelessness and helplessness. May they see the sufficient One. The One who was able to do that which we never had hope of. And who did it that it might be applied, that His work may be applied to us. Lord, help us to think about these things this week, to ponder what an amazing gift we've been given through the sacrifice, through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Your name we pray. Amen.